My father-in-law is a, a carpenter and a home builder, and, and as such, he, he loves to remind me that Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years and only in ministry, full-time ministry for three. Uh, and, and one of the lessons that uh, Jesus uh, teaches his followers in today's passage has its genesis kind of in, in home building. Uh, interestingly, a house uh, will eventually fall if built on a poor foundation. Uh, we'll see that really particularly toward the end of our passage this morning. And Jesus' illustration there, it, it calls us to consider what we are building our lives upon. Uh, today, among other things, we'll, we'll, we'll consider what it means to build our lives on the foundation that, that is Jesus Christ, the, the Son of Man Himself. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 49. Uh, this morning, our passage, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe is found on page 861, 861. And let me just r remind us of, uh, of what Luke's gospel is about and what we've learned so far. And I believe there's an insert there in your bulletin for, for the outline of the sermon. And right now I'm getting ready to kind of move into the context section. Uh, in his gospel, Luke is writing to announce the good news that the Savior of the world has arrived. The Old Testament had these expectations that a, a Savior, a Redeemer, and King would come. And Luke is announcing that, that He has come. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we may be forgiven of our sins. So far in Luke's Gospel, we have learned about Jesus' miraculous arrival through the virgin birth. We've seen the way prepared for Jesus' ministry to begin preaching through the preaching of John the Baptist. And over the last few weeks, we've been kind of following Jesus' ministry uh, through the Galilean region. Throughout Luke's gospel, we've learned that Jesus is our King. He's our Savior and teacher. He is God's favored and faithful Son. He is a prophet. He's a physician and a preacher of the kingdom. Last week, we learned particularly that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord who calls, forgives, and communes with sinners. And this morning, as we study Luke chapter 6, we have the privilege of learning something else about Jesus. In Luke 6, we learn that Jesus is the Son of Man. This title and description that Jesus gives to himself is actually going to increase in number. It's going to pick up in usage as we continue to make our way through Luke's gospel. Uh, if I've counted correctly, then by the time we get to the end of Luke's gospel, the title, this title, Son of Man, is going to be, have been used some 25 times. And in fact, this title has already emerged in Luke's gospel. Last week, we saw Jesus declare himself to be the Son of Man in Luke chapter 5, verse 24. But this title also emerges in verses 5 and 22 of our text this morning. And what we need to understand is, is taking place in Luke 6 is that Jesus, he's, he's beginning to reveal his identity. He's revealing his identity as the Son of Man through declaration, I am the Son of Man, through demonstration, proving that he is the Son of Man, and through discourse. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But it first, in order to kind of fully appreciate this, uh, we need to understand this title in its original context. So I know I had you turn to Luke 6, but you're just going to keep one finger there and go ahead and turn back to the Old Testament, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I want to look, look at verses uh, 13 and 14 in particular. That's on page 745 of the Bibles provided. So I want to think about this title in, in its original context. The book of Daniel is both prophetic and apocalyptic. 
It's prophetic in the sense that it reveals something to us about the future. It's apocalyptic in the sense that it uses highly symbolic imagery. The problem that the book of Daniel presents to us is that the people of God are languishing in exile. And they are dominated by foreign kings and nations. And what Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 tell us is that God is going to send His king. This king that He's promised all along to rescue and redeem His people. These two verses tell us that God's going to send His king. He will be the king of kings. uh, And He will rule over all of the nations. And this is perfectly in line with the Bible's great message of God's promise to send a great redeemer king. So read Daniel. Let me read Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Just point out a few things. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." So through a night vision, perhaps it was a dream, uh, God was revealing several things. First, the Son of Man will come. You see that there in verse 13. Second, He will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Verse 14. In short, He will be given the authority to rule. Third, He will be given a people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Fourth, those people will serve Him. You see that there in the middle of verse 14, that all peoples, nations, And languages should serve him. Finally, that his kingdom shall have no end. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 communicate at least five things. The Son of Man will come. He will have authority. He will have a people. His people shall serve him. And his kingdom shall have no end. Now, since you've kept your finger there in Luke 6, turn back to Luke chapter 6. That's page 861. I want to show us this in kind of an overview fashion, and then we'll kind of dive into it in fuller detail. In in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, Jesus and the Pharisees, they tangle over the Sabbath. They get into a conflict. Uh, Here, Jesus declares and demonstrates that the Son of Man has come, and that He's in their presence. Then in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, Jesus demonstrates that he has authority to call and commission people from different tongues and tribes and nations. And from here, Jesus pivots to deliver what's commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. And this sermon takes up the rest of the chapter, verses 20 to 49. And Jesus, he's addressing different issues along the way. And can you guess what this sermon stresses? It stresses how, in the words of Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What, how should his servants live? That's what Jesus' sermon is about in large part. So with that backdrop in place of Luke chapter 6 as a whole, let's take a closer look at the chapter. Let's first consider the Son of Man's authority. The Son of Man's authority. Read Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 now. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate 
some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In, in verse 2 there of Luke chapter 6, the Pharisees point out that, uh, that Jesus' disciples who are plucking heads of grain, they're, they're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And they kind of group Jesus in there with them as well. According to Exodus chapter 34 verse 21, the practice of working on the Sabbath was prohibited. To label what the disciples were doing as working is kind of a bit of a stretch. Uh, they are kind of plucking heads of grain. But, but that's clearly the, the paradigm that they're working from, that these, these disciples and Jesus are working. Um, the, the Pharisees, you, you might notice, they put the charge in the form of a question. But, but anyone can see that it, it's not an honest question so much as it is actually an accusation. Jesus doesn't really kind of pick up the Pharisees' argument and play on their turf. He doesn't debate the letter of the law. Instead, he points out an example from the Old Testament in which David with his disciples did something similar. And their actions were an apparent violation of the law. Uh, remember, remembering that the Pharisees asked a question, you notice how Jesus responds, how he puts his response, puts it in the form of a question. But his question is different. He rhetorically asks, have you read the law? Um, they have, but they've clearly not understood it. Now, if we, if we stopped here, we might think that Jesus' point that what the disciples did was kind of analogous to what David did, and therefore their actions fell into some exception in the law. There's some scholarly debate about that. Um, though, though that might be the case, it was Jesus' argument in the main is actually somewhat different. You, you see it right there in the main. His argument's found in verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I rule over this day. I have authority over this day. <clears throat> Through this declaration, Jesus is saying he has the authority to exercise lordship and dominion over the Sabbath. And, and really, this should give us pause. For who, who but the one who created the Sabbath has the authority to rule over it? 
Who else could be the Lord of the Sabbath? Doesn't the author of the Sabbath have the authority over the Sabbath? Well, indeed he does. Jesus is making that claim. He is the Son of Man. He is the Lord. He is God. The very one who created the Sabbath. This conflict is not merely over the Sabbath. It's about the one who has the authority to determine the purpose of the Sabbath. Now, part of, of that purpose is illuminated in the verses that follow, in verses 6 through 11. Luke immediately ties Jesus' declaration as Lord of the Sabbath to what happened on another Sabbath. The, the Pharisees are there and they're watching Jesus closely. Why? Well, because they want to accuse Jesus. They were looking for a reason. When the man with the withered hand comes to Jesus... The Lord Jesus takes the opportunity to turn the tables on the Pharisees. And he is the one who is now asking the initial question. Is it lawful? Your turn. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And how do the Pharisees reply? They don't. What can they say? They should say that it's not lawful to harm or destroy life on the Sabbath or on any other day. But the Sabbath is meant for rest. Something must be done here. Here stands a man with a withered hand. A man whose body has been oppressed and marred by the curse. What will Jesus choose? Jesus chooses to do good. And he heals the man. To give him rest from his ailments. And what do the Pharisees choose? Verse 11 there. They choose to be angry. To be filled with fury about such a merciful and good and gracious act. They choose to find a way to do something evil to Jesus. Or at least plan to begin that. See, sin is, is blinding. The Pharisees choose to work against the very principles of the Sabbath. The Lord made the Sabbath as a gift of rest and relief for man. Here Jesus relieved this man's mangled hand. And in doing so, he gave him rest from suffering. Jesus fulfilled the principle of Sabbath rest and mercy on that Sabbath day. And displayed the truth of his declaration that he is in fact the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, th this text is not primarily about whether or not you may play sports on Sunday or go shopping or go out to, restaurant, uh, to a restaurant after church, though those questions are not inconsequential. And I'll even say something uh, about them more in a minute. That's not what this text is primarily about. This text primarily asks us whether or not we recognize that Jesus is the Son of Man and the great Lord of the Sabbath. And if you recognize that, that Jesus is the Son of Man and the great Lord of the Sabbath, the one who made not just one day, but every day, then you'll begin to have the framework for how you must spend not just your Sunday, but every day. You spend it for the glory and honor of the Lord of the Sabbath. Secondarily, I think we can learn from our Lord on the day that was set aside for the people of God to worship, Jesus made sure to turn up to worship. Uh, on Sunday, and not just on Easter Sunday, uh, we, but every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
first century Christians dramatically shifted their worship from Saturday to Sunday in celebration of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection is, however, related to the Sabbath. When Jesus Christ got up from the dead, he secured for his people an eternal day of rest that the author of Hebrews exhorts us to enter into today by faith. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Furthermore, he encourages us to prepare for the fullness of that eternal Sabbath rest by gathering each Lord's Day to rest in the merciful work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, our calendars ought to revolve around the worship of the great Lord of the Sabbath. In a culture that is hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, this will increasingly become an opportunity for us to declare that Jesus is our Lord and the promised Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority, and one of the ways that he, has, uh, he exercises that authority is by calling sinners to come to him. And if you'll recall from our study of Luke chapter 5 last week, Jesus, he kind of, he caught Peter, James, and John so that they might go out and catch more sinners. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19, we're given a more formal call of the Lord's messengers. We're given something else too. A picture of the Son of Man gathering various kinds of people to himself. So let's turn and consider our second point, the Son of Man's servants. And as we do, uh, let's read Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. Here we're considering the Son of Man's servants. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Two significant things happen in these verses. First, Jesus commissions 12 of his disciples to be apostles. That happens in verses 12 through 16. And secondly, all kinds of people are gathered to Jesus to hear him and to be healed by him. That's what we see in verses 17 to 19. Jesus has begun to display and declare that he's the son of man promised in Daniel 7. And here the imagery continues to be unfurled before us. Imagery from other uh, great Old Testament scenes are alluded to here as well. Uh, when we read the words in verse 12, In these days he went out to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. One of the Old Testament passages that should be popping into our minds is Moses' conversation with God in the book of Exodus on Mount Sinai. Ask yourself this question, where's Jesus? 
He's on a mountain. And what did Moses do on that mountain? Well, he talked to God. That's what prayer is. It's, it's talking to God. And what's Jesus doing here? He is talking to God. He is praying. And, and what did Moses do when he, he came down from that mountain? Well, he called the 12 tribes of Israel to, to gather round, to come near and commission them to live as representatives of the living God in the world. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's gathering 12 men from among his disciples to be apostles. An apostle is one who is especially sent to be a messenger. These 12 men would go out and be Jesus' representatives, his ambassadors, his messengers in the world. Jesus' prayer life, I think, is instructive to us, isn't it? Before he makes the decision about his 12 ambassadors and who they would be, he prays. Now, our decisions aren't going to have such profound implications on the life, on the future of the Christian church as Jesus' decision did. Something unique in redemptive history is going on here. Nevertheless, don't we see wisdom in praying through decisions as we thought about this morning in discipleship hour? There's wisdom in praying through decisions, great and small. And I think that we would do well to learn from our Lord here. Now, about this list of 12, much has been made about this list of 12. Uh, we, we really learn about these 12 as kind of Luke, Luke's gospel unfolds. We learn about, about these 12 from other gospel writers and from the book of Acts and from letters, other uh, New Testament letters. Um, what we basically learn about them during the course of Jesus' ministry on earth and from the rest of the New Testament is that they are common and that they're imperfect. That's what we learn about these men. Just look in verses 12 and 16. Look at who heads the list and who ends the list. At the top, we've got Peter, uh, the one who would deny Jesus three times and fail in other ways. And at the bottom, we've got Judas Iscariot, who would finally betray Jesus. And because of his betrayal, Jesus would be put to death and therefore secure salvation. Uh, it's, of course, through Judas' betrayal that Jesus supremely displays that he's the great Son of Man. For three days after his death, the Father raised him from the grave forever, proving to us that he is the Lord of life. He will never die again. And because he lives forever, he really does have an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, Daniel seven fourteen. Accepting Judas, uh, this is the good news that these men would soon come to believe and proclaim that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of Man who came to save sinners through His death and resurrection. This is the message that they would spread. Interestingly enough, in verse 17, Jesus, He steps down from that mountain, that mountaintop experience to a level place, sometimes called a plain, and Jesus ministers to all kinds of people. They have come to hear Him and to be healed by Him. Uh, some are accosted by unclean spirits, and mercifully, Jesus casts those spirits out. Jesus is full of glorious healing power. And this power is not used for just one kind of people, but for all kinds of people. Just look at those who are listed there in verse 17. His disciples are there. A great crowd is found there. So are people from Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. 
Now, in, in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon were often referred to as the coastlands. Uh, in other words, they, they were Gentile peoples. They were out there near the sea. So what we're seeing here is that Jews and Gentiles are present. There are people from the so-called nations there. Jesus has come to redeem and rule over people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Remember, the Son of Man in Daniel 7 was promised that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Luke is trying to paint a picture of that for us by telling us who was there. But really, Daniel 7 isn't the only place where this promise was made, that Jesus would have people from other uh, tribes and nations. Uh, in Isaiah 42, uh, the Lord is telling us what the Messiah will be like. And then in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 42, we're told this, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, think Tyre and Sidon, wait for his law. They wait to hear his law. And do you know what Jesus does next? Uh, he, like Moses, on the mountain, Jesus gives his people the law. He gives them commands for how they are to live. So having learned that the Son of Man's servants come from every tongue and tribe and nation, let's turn and consider our third point, the Son of Man's ethics. The Son of Man's ethics. So in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 49, Jesus preaches what's commonly called the Sermon on the Plain. And if you've read this sermon... Uh, then you'll know that it has a great deal in common with what is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, there's not a discrepancy between the Gospels, uh, Gospel accounts. Rather, what's uh, likely taking place is that Jesus preached on these topics on several occasions. He, he preached on them in, on, on several occasions in, in different places. He addressed different things, and he would state things differently for the sake of his audience and his hearers. He's tailoring his sermon to the needs of of his audience. So having declared and demonstrated that he's the promised Son of Man, Jesus now teaches his hearers what it looks like to serve the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus proclaims to his servants his ethics. Uh, and, and what's the pattern of life that these disciples are to live out? In short, the servants of the Son of Man are to identify with him. They're to display love and mercy and forgiveness. They're to reject self-righteousness and bear good fruit. And so build their lives on the Son of Man Himself. And just so you know, we're not going to be able to read all of Jesus' sermon. So uh, perhaps this afternoon, feel free to go back and read through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. We'll read through a few of its sections together. First, let's read verses 20 through 26, where we learn that the servants of the Son of Man identify with Him regardless of the cost. Servants of the Son of Man identify with him. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See, Jesus, he opens his sermon up with a list. This list is often called the Beatitudes. It's a list similar uh, to Matthew's gospel, the one found in Matthew's gospel. This is a list that not only explains what the servants of his kingdom are like, but more importantly, the reversal of the fortunes that they will undergo. The Son of Man, uh, servants of the Son of Man, may be poor and hungry and sorrowful and reviled now, but there is coming a day when they will leap for joy because great is their reward in heaven. Not only will those who are servants of the Son of Man experience a reversal, but so will those who rejected the Son of Man experience a reversal. Those who are rich and full of food, full of laughter and ease and well thought of, they too will experience a reversal. And the implied reality is that they will not receive the kingdom of heaven. Biblically speaking, to be blessed is to be under God's favor. Does this mean that the Son of Man receives people into his service based upon their wealth, their, their class, socioeconomic status? No. Being received into God's kingdom was never based upon age, class, ethnicity, or biological sex. The point that Jesus Christ, the point is that in Jesus Christ, the world's expectations will be turned on its head. Blessing in this life does not mean blessing in the next. And blessing in this life does not mean that God's blessings are upon you now. As so many in the first century thought, so many in Jesus' day thought that if you were blessed with material wealth, that, well, you, you must be in good with God. Well, that's not the case. That kind of thought that material blessings meant God's favor rest upon you was common in the first century. And it's common in our day too. The real crucial factor as to whether or not we are servants of the Son of Man, truly blessed by God and received into His kingdom, is how we relate to Him. Are our lives so identified with Him that others know that? And their interactions with us are in some ways shaped by our identification with Him. Are, are we looking to our material blessings as a mark of God's favor with us now? So much so that we pay little attention to Him and fail to depend upon Him. Prosperity is a test for the people of God. The challenge of prosperity is that it tempts us to believe that we don't need God because we don't need anything. Servants of the Son of Man are people who know that they need God. People who know that they cannot live without Jesus. Christian, is Jesus your only hope in life and in death? In verse 27, Jesus moves on to the second point in his sermon. Servants of the Son of Man are loving, merciful, and forgiving. For now, let's read verses 27 to 35. 
Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus, here you'll notice, he continues to teach through contrasts and reversals. Jesus is calling his servants to live in such a way that reverses the world's wisdom. Just look at verse 27 for the first example. Love your enemies? That's a complete reversal of the world's wisdom when it comes to relating to your enemies. And this seems to be the, the main focus of, of much of these verses to boot. It's mentioned twice. And everything in between those two mentions is, is really meant to communicate what love looks like. We should remember to keep in mind what Jesus has just said in his Beatitudes, particularly in verse 22. I think that we're supposed to understand that Jesus' disciples, his servants are being viewed as enemies, hated and mistreated on account of identifying with him as our Lord and Savior. So to be clear, Jesus is not addressing how a spouse is supposed to respond to abuse. Jesus is not addressing a wife who has been hit by her husband. He is not telling her to turn the other cheek. Jesus does not condone abuse. And neither will the elders of this church. Neither spousal nor child abuse will be tolerated in this church. And if you have been abused, I want to invite you to seek the protection of the elders. Please come and speak with us. I want you to know that we are ready and eager to love you, to serve you, and to protect you. We will do whatever is necessary to see to it that you are cared for as a beloved son and daughter of the Most High God. What Jesus is addressing here is the situation where his disciples are being viewed as enemies, hated and mistreated on account of identifying with him as our Lord and Savior, and how they are to respond in love. As servants of the Son of Man, we are not to return evil for evil. When we endure persecution, we do not respond with vengeance. That is no way to represent him and serve him. Especially since Jesus' mission was to come to this earth and die for his enemies. What was it that Romans chapter 5 verse 10 said? There Paul tells us that while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. See, Jesus, he was hated, cursed, abused, 
struck and stripped of his clothing. And on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, he blessed his enemies and said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. See, love does not retaliate. And love is not conditional. That's what Jesus is getting at in verses 30 to 35. We do not love so that we may get something in return. That's not love. That's bartering. Love sacrifices and serves. When you spend yourself in love for others, consider your heart's response. Do you want that same person to respond the same for you? Do you want that person to kind of recognize your act of love? Do you want that person to do something else on account of your love? Love expects nothing in return. Isn't that how Jesus loved us? He gave us the riches of his righteousness and we give him poor, sin-filled lives. Love is generous and unconditional. In verses 36 to 38, we learn that the servants of the Son of Man are not only marked by love, but they're also marked by mercy and forgiveness. Mercy is withholding judgment where it is deserved and due. God showed mercy to us by refusing to pour out judgment upon us. And instead, he poured it out upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is a choice to graciously pardon someone who has sinned against you. Now, this does not mean that all consequences, consequences will be eliminated as a result of that sin. But forgiveness does entail refusing to bring up another person's sin in the future and to use that past sin against them. Jesus is also not saying that sin cannot be addressed and dealt with. But here where judging is bound up with forgiveness, mercy, and love, Jesus is calling his servants to remember how the Lord has dealt with them. That's the point of the very last phrase, that last part of verse 38. See the last part of verse 38? For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back. Remember what kind of love and mercy and forgiveness you have known from God. Servants of the Son of Man show that same kind of love and mercy and forgiveness to others. Servants of the Son of Man also reject self-righteousness. Read Luke chapter 6, verses 39 to 41. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? See, servants of the Son of Man recognize their own sinfulness. And in doing so, they reject self-righteousness. Remember, Jesus is telling his disciples this. That's how this sermon began. He's telling his disciples this, which means he must want us to learn something of what he is saying here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are saints. We are saved. We are set apart. We are recipients of the kingdom of God. But we're also sinners. Let's not pretend that we're not. That's what hypocrites do. Christians confess their sin and seek to repent of it. 
Love will in fact address a brother or sister's sin, but not before addressing our own. What Jesus says is that we need to first recognize that we are sinners and that we need to address the sin in our lives before we address the sin in the life of our fellow believer. But if we love our fellow believer, we will address his sin. And so what Jesus is teaching us is that the servants of the Son of Man reject self-righteousness when we address sin in our brother or sister's life. We don't come to them as though we don't have any sin ourselves. Not only do servants of the Son of Man reject self-righteousness by confessing that they too are sinners, but positively, they also bear good fruit in their lives. That's what Jesus says in verses 30, uh, 43 to 45. Uh, servants of the Son of Man will begin to reflect the character of the Son of Man, and even the character described throughout this sermon. Because they've been remade by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will respond to the authority of the Son of Man. They will come to Him when He calls, treasure His name above their name, do good. They will bless, give, and pray for others. All of these commands that Jesus has uttered in this sermon. Servants of the Son of Man will display love and mercy and forgiveness. They will eschew self-righteousness and confess their sin. And because they have been given a new heart, they will choose their words wisely and well. A good tree will bear good fruit. How do we know if we're a good tree that's producing good fruit? By doing what the Lord Jesus commands. This is how we display that we are building our lives on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the last section of Jesus' sermon. Servants of the Son of Man build their lives on him. Let's read verses 47, sorry, 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. See, here Jesus' sermon, it really comes full circle. In his first point, he told his hearers that they must identify with him. All those who receive him will be received into his kingdom. All those who reject them, him will be ruined when his kingdom comes. Jesus underscores the reward of those who receive him and the ruin of those who reject him through a different word picture. Out of two men who build their houses, everyone is building a house. Every one of us is building a house. The question for each one of us is, who or what are we building our house upon? Our foundation will be revealed on the last day when the flood of God's judgment comes. Just like the flood came when Noah built the ark. That flood will come. 
And those who are building their houses on the Lord Jesus Christ are those who listen to his words and do what he says. Friend, if you're, you're here this morning, you're not a, a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, can I ask you a question? What are you building your life upon? Are you building your life upon riches and material wealth? Are you building your life on the pursuit of ease and comfort? Are you building your life on a good reputation? Do not be deceived in this life. Do not be deceived by blessings. Blessings do not necessarily mean that God is pleased with you. All those things are going to be ripped away from you. That is what Jesus told us in verses 24 through 26. There is a reversal coming. Those things are not meant to be the foundation of your eternal future. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 49. Those things are like sand. And when the the flood of God's judgment comes, those who build their lives on those things will be swept off to eternal ruin. The ruin, Jesus said, would be great, so great that there's no recovery from it. How do we become those to whom Jesus says in verse 20, yours is the kingdom. We become servants of the Son of Man by hearing the words of Jesus and making them, of making Him the foundation of our lives. Friend, build your life on Jesus Christ. Build your life on the Son of Man. Build your life on the one who gave His life on behalf of sinners like you and me. Friends, Jesus has made His authority as the Son of Man known. Jesus has honestly told us that we are sinners in this sermon. He has said to all of us that we've got a log in our eye. We are unrighteous. And God would be totally just to punish us for our sin forever in hell. Jesus, you see, He has said some difficult things to us in this sermon. But He has also said some things to us that give us great hope and assurance. Chief among them is that He has promised to give us a share in His eternal kingdom if we would identify with Him through faith. If we would build our lives upon Him. Unlike us, Jesus never sinned. Jesus was perfectly righteous in thought and in word and in deed. And He was so for the whole course of His life. Jesus' life was a living of this sermon that He preached. And having perfectly lived out the God-glorifying life of displaying love and mercy and forgiveness, He laid His life down. And Jesus died upon the cross. And when he died, he took the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. And he not only laid his life down, but three days later, after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he is indeed the glorious son of man, the king whom we should serve. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a servant of the son of man, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to hear The call of the Son of Man. The call to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Him. To trust in Him. Hear His words. Believe that He lived for you the life that you have not lived. Believe that He died for you the death that you deserved to die for the punishment for your sins. And believe that He was raised from the grave for you so that you might be received 
into the kingdom of God, all because of His righteousness, which you receive as your own through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what it means to build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ, placing your eternal hope in Him, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that good news, about the good news that we can have certainty even in the face of God's coming judgment. We should conclude. As we do, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us to hear Jesus' words. How important it is for us to hear His words and to do them. We must live lives that are identified with Jesus. We must do so even as we face the scorn of this world. We can endure mockery, for we have a kingdom that cannot be taken from us. We must love our enemies, do good, and give generously. Jesus has commanded it. We must be merciful and forgiving, just as God has been merciful and forgiving toward us. We must reject self-righteousness and humbly admit that we are sinners, especially when we're trying to help each other with sin in our lives. We must produce good fruit and speak pure words. This is how we reveal to the world that we have heard the words of Jesus. In fact, in in just a moment, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we can put this admonition from Jesus into practice. Jesus said that we are to hear his words and to do them. Jesus has said that we are to remember his death through this meal until he comes again. So Christian, take hold of the bread and the cup in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we partake, we are doing what our Lord has told us to do. Let's partake in faith, resting our lives, our eternal futures on the rock that is our Lord Jesus Christ, the great Son of Man, whose kingdom shall never end. Let's pray together.